welcome to the Dow of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Laura Hilliger. And I'm Doug Belshaw. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash we are open. Thank you to our most recent backer, Alex. We've now got some badges for people who back We Are Open projects and Open Collective. So they're winging their digitally digital way to supporters as we speak. Today, we're talking to Pedram Parisman, a workshop designer and facilitator, and also a leadership coach, team builder, consultant, and all-around amazing human being. Um, we had the pleasure of working with Ped on a couple of projects during the pandemic, and so we're really delighted to have him here today. Welcome, Ped. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Excited to be here. So the first question, of course which I hope you're prepared for, Ped, is what is your favorite book? So I did search uh, inside myself to, to answer this question. And it's a, kind of a tough one because I think quite a lot of the books I read nowadays are nonfiction, business books, productivity books, or books related to personal development. But if I kind of go back to when I was younger, I was really into science fiction. And I loved 1984 uh, it's a bit cliched, I know, but um, I read as a late teenager and then uh, can, I think picked it up a few times as an adult. Um, I've even seen a theatre and an, an opera adaptation to it um, <laughs> over the years. Uh, was it a rock opera? No, it wasn't. Um, huh. It was just a you know, regular opera. Um, hmm. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's a bit cliched, but I, I do, I really enjoyed the kind of the social commentary that I know was relevant at the time when he wrote it and uh, when Orwell wrote it and how it continues to feel relevant now. You know, it's one of those things that I, I refer back to a lot. Uh, yeah, so I, can, I think that's my, my non-fiction book, um, uh, my fiction book that I would choose as my favourite. Wow, and have you got a non-fiction one as well? Yeah, I, you know, again, I was like thinking about this and I, you know what, I reckon what... I'd say it's probably the first self-help book that I read. It's called The Art of Possibility by, um, I actually went to find it. It's by uh, Ben Zander and his wife, Roz. And it's a bit, they're, they're American. It's a bit cheesy uh, at times. But uh, when I read it, it just, it was at a time when I needed to kind of reframe how I saw myself and how I saw the world. And it was although I can't remember the specific details in it now, the uh, every kind of chapter, which was some practice to help you reframe what you see and how you experience things, was just like eye-opening. Um, and yeah, it really helped me. I, I guess it was a catalyst for me to do the work that I do now. It was, I was still in, it was in that world of um, learning and growth and personal development, but this was just a little bit more of a catalyst to do what I do now. I feel like as an American, I have to ask whether or not you think Americans are cheesy, since uh, that's how and, you introduce the yeah, book. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, and I should also add that I am married to an American too. <laughs> so, but when it comes to the world of personal development and the, the stuff that came out of the human potential movement in the 60s and 70s, there's a lot of, let's, I mean, let's not beat about the bush. There's a lot of things in, in that world. <laughs> 
understand. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. So, so that's really interesting. Um, the, I feel like I was slightly radicalized as a teenager by reading Animal Farm. Um, and recently, actually, I read during the pandemic, 1984, and Brave New World back to back, which is a horrendous thing to do in the middle yeah, of the yeah. pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read them back to back at the time as well. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about do we live in a, a Huxleyan world or an Orwellian world, there's kind of arguments mm-hmm. to be made on both sides of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a, a couple of years ago, I had to reread all of the things I was forced to read in, in school phase. And so I reread 1984, Animal Farm, Brave New World, um, Lord of the Flies, which if you haven't read that as an adult, you should read it and then wonder why they would put that on school <laughs> curriculum because, whoa. Um, and, you know, Fahrenheit 451, Day of the Triffids, all of those oh, yeah, books that's as an adult. Oh my oh, goodness me. Oh, what a book. wonderful book. Yeah. I loaned it to someone and then I never got it back, which is why I have a policy of not loaning people the books. Sequel though. Rubbish. There's a sequel? There's a sequel to Day of the Triffids. The reason you haven't heard about it is because it's terrible. Um, <laughs> that is why. Yeah. It's not like you know, like the Toy Story movies get better. Yeah. It's not like that. I'm, we're gonna get anyway, re- we're gonna get anyway. reader mail about your opinion of the sequel to Day of the Triffids. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I haven't read it. Um, I want to start because I've heard you tell this story before. Um, <laughs> because some people might think, "Oh, I know Ped. He's that good-looking guy on LinkedIn." And I wonder whether we could start. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, with <laughs> one of and I, I legit legitimately believe this to be true. One of the best profile photos in the history of profile photos. So could you just, and Laura might not have heard the story, so could you tell us the story behind this this profile photo of yours? Yeah, uh, okay, I will. Um, so, I mean, I, I should say, I should probably change the photo. It's about seven years old now. I was in my mid-30s then. Uh, and it was probably when I was in my most peak hipster. <laughs> I was coming out of uh, the Hoxton Hotel. I'd had brunch, probably avocado on toast, obviously. Uh, and I was wearing a smart, casual Rafa cycling blazer. It's like, a, you know, like imagine a blazer, but designed for cycling um, with the little kind of pink highlight. A Rafa. Yeah. Yeah. So for listeners who don't know, Rafa is one of the most luxe cycling brands. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that jacket. They don't make it anymore. Anyway, and um, I was unlocking my fixed gear bike, obviously. And some guy approached me uh, who said that he worked for a Korean style magazine and he was taking pictures of cool guys on cool bikes. <laughs> so of course, thinking I was a cool guy with a cool bike, I, I agreed for him to take the pictures. So he did. And uh, you know, he directed me to look longingly into the distance and all that stuff. Um, and afterwards, I asked him if uh, he would share some of the photos and maybe even the link of the, the you know, the article uh, that was going to be written with me in it. And he did, and it was great. And he sent me the link and it obviously all written in Korean, but the headline was in English and it said, style maketh man. And I was like, oh, this is great. Wow. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, and I was like curious to know what... The rest of it was about, you know, all the written in Korean. So I emailed it to a, a friend of mine 
who's Korean? I said, what does it say? And she she got back to me and she goes, you know, so it starts off in Korean as well, you know, style maketh man. But let's see what else is in store for men in their 40s. I was 35 at the time. I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it was like this bittersweet moment in my life. So yeah, that's uh, that's where that photo came from. I should change it, like I said. <laughs> I don't think so. I love it. It's timeless. I would really like to see the rest of the photo. Oh yeah, I'll 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 dig it out. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Um, so that is on your LinkedIn profile and other things which people should go and have a look at. And it's interesting because I knew this about you a little bit anyway, about how you'd had a varied career. But then I was scrolling through your your LinkedIn profile last week. And oh my goodness, like, you know, um, I founded an aspiration agency, which I knew about. I didn't know that you took a career break to learn Spanish in South America. Like, can you just talk? Because one of the interesting things about this podcast um is we we are very fortunate to know awesome people like yourself. And some people might be listening to this thinking, how do I get to be paid? And <laughs> sometimes it's interesting, like walking people through um, some of the career transitions and like how you ended up where you are now and that kind of thing. Yeah. If you don't mind. So, yeah. Well, um, and so, yeah, what's the, what would you like me to share? Well, like right at the beginning. So, you know, what was your first job? How did you get into it? And then how did you decide to move on from that? And then you can fast forward bits that, you know, you don't want to dwell on or whatever. But like, what's the arc been? What's the trajectory been? What's been in common? What's changed? Nice. Okay. I think for me, and and it's funny because it's one of those things where I haven't always been uh, intentional or cognizant around the decisions I'm making. And, you know, when I look back and I go, okay, what was that about? You know, I can make sense of it. You know, like what's the narrative. Um, and I'd probably say that the, the narrative or like the, the thing that hooks each experience to each other. And even if it's gone into like random, you know, <laughs> in, uh, in maybe a convoluted way or a non-linear way is this idea about helping people learn and grow as people, you know, the kind of the practical and interpersonal skills that you need in the workplace to just be a great colleague, be a great teammate, manager, leader. Um, so, yeah, I kind of i have done that sometimes at the front line of my work. For example, when I was a teacher or a Duke of Edinburgh leader, other times just being more behind the scenes, for example, com- consulting with organizations and charities that support others, you know, the kind of, projects that we worked on together. Um, and now I'm increasingly working with other coaches and consultants and experts to help them create like high value workshops and programming experiences so that they can essentially like amplify their impact on others to learn and grow. Like a little bit meta there, but yeah, so I think around learning and growing um, is like the, th- the thread. And when I kind of, I don't know, I can kind of t- share a little bit more about my kind of, <laughs> I don't know, like, origin story is not the right word, but like where that came from, because I've like done a lot of like searching around that. Because if you'd have asked me what I wanted to do when I was at university or even when I was at school, I'd, I'd say something like, I want to, you know, be an investment banker or a management consultant or something like that. I know, right? You, like, I can see your, your kind of facial expressions, like, that's not me. Um, so yeah, I can if you want me to share a little bit more about what what happened. Yeah. Or, well, origin stories are what every superhero needs. So yeah, true. Yeah. And um, Ped, what what did you actually study at university? 
theoretical physics. So I have a massive theoretical degree. physics. Yeah. And you <laughs> wanted to be an investment banker. Well, I mean, do you know what? <laughs> physicists go to become investment bankers you know I, I sort of saw the other people around in my in my um cohort yeah it's funny enough so i i, I yeah i've got a master's degree in theoretical physics from imperial college uh and uh, when i graduated i was highly educated but completely unemployable that's how i kind of <laughs> and uh it's because i didn't have any of those I guess like soft skills under my, under my belt to demonstrate that I could work as part of a team or all these other things, you know, these things that graduate recruits are looking for, you know, communication skills and whatnot. Um, mm. And that really came from, I guess, my parents, um, Iranian-Armenian expats uh, who moved to the UK. They didn't really want my brother and I to experience any adversity. So I'd say that, I was kind of spoiled <laughs> so all right. the, and because they didn't know how the system worked around, you know, the, the value of getting a part-time job or doing an internship. This, all these things just weren't on my radar. So when I graduated, all my friends had kind of gone into consultancy and investment banking and all that stuff. And I was there like, going, okay, what, what do I need to do now to get a job? get a graduate job so i went and did a whole bunch of volunteer work uh fundraise went on a charity expedition and that's when i first got my my first job after university was working as an executive assistant in a governmental body that helped or a team that helped marginalized unemployed people get into work and that was really enlightening because i was like okay this is like i was privileged and unemployable, and these people, you know, there was like this, this sort of, the, there was a bit of a gap there. So, you know, all that happened. I got my kind of, you know, my uh, all the things I could put on a CV. And I was set to become an accountant. So I kind of did a little bit of a pivot. I was like, okay, I'm going to be an accountant, and then I was um, uh, targeted by through the Milk Round. I don't know if that website still exists. It's like the thing that graduates help helps. Yeah, it's it's a thing in the UK, isn't it? And I think maybe Australia as well. Yeah. Um, so you you kind of get shopped to different types of careers, I guess, and yeah. organisations. Yeah. So I got this email to to uh, it was to join the inaugural cohort of Teach First. I so said I don't know if anybody, if you know, I think Doug, you might know about Teach First. I know Teach First. Yeah. Teach First. It's a it's a teacher training program, and uh, it's it, it's has a, it's a charity that was had a uh, I guess a mission to address educational disadvantage. Now it was kind of controversial at the time because, and you can, the, the name uh, suggests this: it's like teach first, <laughs> make a difference. You know, that was like part of the. Then go and earn loads of money. Then yeah, then <laughs> go and like develop your leadership skills, and then go to the corporate world and earn loads of money. But you know, you've sort of you've yeah. gone and you know you've given something back a bit. So I know controversial. It's 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 evolved since then. Um, but I thought, what a great opportunity for me to actually go and mm. do something which, uh, like, helps people like, that are less privileged than me, and also maybe help them not make the same mistakes I made around you know, this, not developing your soft skills. That's why I did the Duke of became the Duke of Edinburgh leader in the school and all that stuff. So that's uh, part of how I go into the work I did. I do. Uh, but instead of teaching for two years, I ended up teaching for five years. And yeah, I got more and more fascinated by 
how people learn and grow, you know, all the soft skill stuff. And I suppose everything else since then has had that thread. All the trains that I've done, all the work that I've been involved in, in some shape or form has got to do with helping people grow. So yeah, that's, uh, I've thought about that, you know, and your kind of question made me think about it a bit, a bit more. Well, it is fascinating though, isn't it? Because you kind of, especially when you're young, you're asked a lot, like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And then when you're at university, you have a story that you tell yourself and then you kind of go out into the world and you realize like, oh, it turns out I'm interested in different things than I thought I was. And the opportunities that, you know, you, you have um, and how you can link those experiences you've had together is fascinating. So it's really interesting to know that you, that was, you were turned on to that by a formative experience quite, quite early on. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that kind of geeky physicist in me continues um, to try to understand how things work. That's why I wanted to do university. I want to study physics at university. How does the universe work? But now it's more about like, how do we work? Like internally, mm-hmm. like what our, what's our kind of internal processes as people? Also, how we work with others uh, interpersonally. All those things are fasc- I'm fascinated by. So, you know, when I talk about the books I've read, you know, the nonfiction books around personal development and all that, like neuroscience, psychology, all that stuff. I'm, yeah, fascinated by. I think it's really interesting, the metaphors that we that we kind of learn through osmosis in, in our the early part of our lives where, you know, we, we hear that our careers are like a ladder, you know, like step by step, you just climb up or, you know, you hear, hear that in order to do X, then you have to follow, you know, whatever the letters before X are like in a perfect line. But every time we talk to somebody about how they got to where they are, their origin story is completely different from where they've ended up. And none of the career paths that we talk about or that we hear about, including our own, are in any way a straight line. There are these crazy curly cues. And I think this is something that's really interesting, particularly for young people um, to, to understand. And I wonder how we as a society can do better about helping people understand that there is no step-by-step yeah. to be, you know, quote unquote successful, that it is all, you know, a learning and growing journey and that it's curly. Yeah, I agree. And I think sometimes you can be super intentional about it. And other times it's just seeing what happens, you know, and, uh, making mm-hmm. decisions, feeling it out because you're not going to necessarily know, what you want to do until you've tried something um did it you know did you enjoy it did it feel good you know did it you know, did you feel like you were making a difference or whatever it is like whatever your barometer is um huh. and uh you're not going to know until you try and then i think what's important is just to to pause every so often and just check in with yourself you know um mm-hmm. you know like last year last november i did a little had a bit of a pivot with the work that I'm up to. And that came off the back of me asking myself, what do I love doing? What do I like doing? And what can I do? But I probably shouldn't. And, uh, and yeah, again, just that, that just helps to clarify the next steps. Do you have a process for that reflection? Do you like, are there any specific tools that you use to help you do that reflection every once in a while? So that literally just asking those three questions. It's not 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 too complicated. Right. <laughs> okay. Point. Yeah. Um, the other one which I I've I've, uh, I've used and I've actually worked with others to use is uh, the concept of the ikigai, uh, yep. the Japanese concept of a life well lived. And if you Google it, 
you end up with uh, a couple of overlapping circles that represents what I love doing, what the world needs, and a whole bunch of other things. But it doesn't actually, that, that construct, as it turns out, doesn't come from Japan. It's like some buddy who works in personal development like came up with it but there's some really good prompt questions to to ask yourself and then just see where the overlap is and go okay that's the sweet spot to to kind of to focus on yeah i was totally prompting you to say ikigai because <laughs> when you asked those three questions then i saw the circles in my head and yeah. we actually have a um we have a page on our wiki that's called the spirit of uh we are open and we we use those questions to sort of talk a little bit about how we choose projects and yeah, um, you know do, just do that kind of reflection. And on uh, learnwith.weopen.com, we have a template which people can use, uh, which we use with Greenpeace International for some work we did on their their websites. So if you want to be like Ped and do some personal development work, <laughs> seamless plug here. Um, you can have a look at that on learnwith.weopen.com. I'd actually just highlight that last question as well. What do I? What can I do? But I probably shouldn't, because it's there's as we go through our lives, um, we end up doing things in different roles, different jobs that we can become competent in. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you enjoy it or you want to continue to do it. And I think it's quite good to ask yourself the opposite as well. It's like, what what do I need to stop doing? Because there is an opportunity cost of continuing to do things that either don't light you up or, or a bit of a drag or whatever it is, uh, when, whereas just only, and, and you know, you might continue to, to do it because you can do it. Um, so yeah, the, I said that's a, a good one. we could talk for hours and i want to get to workshops in a moment but um the so oliver quinlan i don't know if you know oliver but he's a he's a friend of ours he used to be at the raspberry pi foundation now he's going to work for civil service um he's got a newsletter and a couple weeks ago he did one about he used to be a teacher as well the title of it was you're learning a lot but is it valuable and he was talking about like we have this assumption that we're always learning new things in the work that we do, and therefore all learning is valuable. And he talks about, you know, finally getting a new project through an arcane approvals process or working out how to convince someone obstructive to um, try and solve a new problem. You're saying, well, some learning is just the things that you have to do because your workplace is dysfunctional, and that's not actually useful learning. <laughs> um <laughs> You know what I mean? And like, just I thought it was an interesting link to what you're you're saying there in terms of stuff that you know you can do, but perhaps you don't want to do anymore. Um, you, you might work in an organization or with people who, yeah, you can work with them, but maybe you don't want to do that anymore. And so that reflection is a really, really valuable thing to do. What do you love? What do you get out of bed for in the morning? Mm. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Good. I think that's a, this is also like an, a nice place where I I would love to have advice or have had advice in the past about how do you um, how do you actually convince people who constantly come to you for something that they think that you're good at that you yeah. don't want to do anymore? Right. Like how do you make how do you actually make that pivot? Because often we're known for something yeah. and people are like, oh, Laura is just the most awesome whatever facilitator. And I might hate facilitation. Mm -hmm. I don't, I like it, but <laughs> if I don't like it and people think I'm really good at it and they constantly ask me to, to do that work, how do you actually help like pivot without, you know, sort of damaging your reputation or yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think the, the simple answer 
it, and it's easier said than done is to say no to those opportunities. Um, I know that it's a lot easier said than done, especially because you might be, you know, you especially if you run your own business, uh, you're a freelancer, you might be like, well, that's a paycheck, you know, that's going to yeah. uh, give me all these other things I want in my life. But like I said, there's, there, there is an opportunity cost there. That means that you aren't spending the time investing in the aspects of your work and life that you are wanting to grow. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I think it's it's a it's a it's a it's a generous no, I think, uh, and uh, mm. helping people point them in the the right direction. You know, there might be other people that you've worked with that can do that work and enjoy doing that work, and say, you know, I'm not doing that, but this person can. And yeah, that, pointing yeah. to other people can be yeah. a very generous thing to do, can't it? Yeah. Um, let's get into to workshops. I find it fascinating to hear about your story from like. Um, hard-nosed physicist realizing that they needed more like human soft skills <laughs> to genuinely being one of the most emotionally mature people I've had the pleasure of, of working with yeah um, and in the conversation that we've had so far um, I think there's a, in the background there's a little bit of like people not realizing the development and the evolution that needs to take place in human beings to get to where they need to be. And so when I was younger, you know, my dad was deputy head of my school and my football coach and whatever. And I saw the behind the scenes thing. Mm. Um, and I, I wondered, like a lot of the time people see you or see people as the finished article. Um, but is there a, have you had to learn new skills like to do what you're doing online versus offline do you feel like there are just certain people who I, I shouldn't say this but like like naturally good facilitators or naturally good like workshop hosts or leaders or whatever um or, or are there certain things that can definitely be learned I guess yeah well there's a lot of I think to be a facilitator whether it's online or offline there's a lot of learned skills but I think the one thing that uh, great, all great facilitators that I've seen um, have in common is that they care about the people that they are running a session for, whether it's whatever kind of workshop or programming it is. Um, obviously, care that the content is valuable to them, uh, care enough to tune in and respond to what's going on for the audience. Um, you know, working with whatever's come up with the, for them, you know, their thoughts, their reactions, their feelings, all that stuff, just like welcoming all of those things, not making them wrong, but just sort of working with them to just help them get to the outcomes that they want. So I think that obviously you can cultivate that, but you've got to ultimately care about the people that you're running a workshop for. You've shared a lot of stuff recently, um, on, I keep mentioning LinkedIn, but that's, I guess, the place where I see you most mm -hmm. often, mainly because like, I'm not on Twitter and stuff um, anymore. And like daily, you're sharing <laughs> stuff, like giving away all of the, the secrets, as it were, um, hopefully helping the world become better at workshops. But are there any things that you would say, okay, I'm planning a workshop. Um, I've got to have these things in, either magic ingredients or like the fundamentals, or mm -hmm. like if I don't put these three things in, it's going to... You know, fail or, or whatever are there certain things that you would say okay make sure you you get these sorted out before you get before you begin 
Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think there's a few things, a few ways you can think about that. There's sort of the, the mechanics of a workshop, you know, like how how it's structured and how you set it up and all that stuff, how you give instructions. Uh, but I, I go further upstream and think about the principles that underlie it. And for me, there are three principles that underlie great workshops. They're context-based, they're evocative, and they're experiential. Um, and I, I came across a version of this idea uh, by uh, a course leader of mine uh, many years ago called Caroline Hall. Uh, when I was on a 10-month leadership program uh, I did in 2016, she shared a ver- ver- version of this, but I've kind of gone on to adapt it to, I guess, to make it more relevant to the kinds of work that I do. Um, yeah, I can sort of go, go into a little bit more detail about what I mean by context. Oh, for sure. Yeah, please, please do. So context-based, I guess this really means that there's always a context behind every workshop you run. So each group that you run a workshop for will have their own context, who they are, what they do, what's working for them, what's not working for them, what they want to achieve in their work or their lives. Basically, there is a context to who they are. Really understanding the context helps to clarify that value proposition, but also having that context really anchors you around the design of the session so deciding what goes in what doesn't go in but ultimately when you're then in the session that context helps you navigate the conversation it's like the anchor so that you're really paying attention to what's going on and relating it back to that context so that it's useful for people Um, Mm -hmm. and especially if things things don't go to plan that context is going to still be a useful anchor to guide the conversation or guide the uh, the workshop back to what's going to be meaningful for people. So that's context-based. Experiential, I think this really comes down to this idea about learning by doing. You know, if you think about some of the uh, great learning experiences that you've had, you've you know, probably got your hands dirty. You've, you've tried something, you may have failed or succeeded, and, and that's just prompted you to get a little bit better and better from it. So I think workshops, great workshops, whether they're surround, whether they're to do with individual growth, where individuals are developing their self-awareness to learn new skills, or if it's group processes where groups are learning how to be more skillfully or learning how to more skillfully work with each other, or even right. innovation processes where you're helping harvest a group's collective wisdom all these cases, some kind of learning is happening and it's happening through experience. So I think experience is really important. You're not just like talking at people, you're giving them things to do, um, which mm-hmm. essentially leads into the next bit, the, that, the evocative element, because those experiences evoke reactions and yeah, thoughts, feelings, um, people enjoying it, not enjoying it. All these reactions are really important because in a workshop, you want to be collecting those reactions, helping people make sense of those, whether the experience was a positive, positive or negative for that activity, because that ultimately helps them develop the self-awareness, social awareness, all those other things that are needed to figure out what does this mean for them and the realities. So I think those three principles around context-based experiential evocative learning are, are what I consider whenever I'm designing any workshop or programming. 
So I find this fascinating, Ped, you know, the evocative and experiential thing. I've got two things I want to kind of zoom in on. The first one is whether, you know, when you're running a workshop, do you tend to run them by yourself or does it depend on numbers? Do you have someone else usually helping you, that kind of thing? I My preference is to run workshops with other people, like with a co-facilitator. I, I think it, it creates a, a better dynamic mm. for the people participants um both those facilitators can bring their own expertise uh when one facilitator is maybe sharing an idea or a concept or giving instructions the other one can be tuning in much more clearly with what's going on with the group see if something's landing or not landing do a bit of a yes and you know i I, it's just i find that so Mm. much more dynamic and interesting Mm. although i do run things by myself yeah yeah for sure and the the interesting thing is you know when you're talking about the evocative and experiential thing you're basically increasing the likelihood potentially of things going wrong because you're tapping into people's emotions you're getting them to do stuff and that might not go right Mm -hmm. you're interacting with and i see so many or I have experienced so many times as a participant where people try and keep things really neutral and therefore it's really mm-hmm. boring and you don't learn anything. And I wondered, I guess this comes into the next question about like how you've noticed ways in which it could be your own workshops or the ones you participated. Are there certain ways in which workshops tend to go wrong? Is it based on them not getting those three things round about right about context-based, evocative, experiential or are there particular ways in which workshops tend to fail or go wrong? Yeah, I think that, so. A little bit, a bit of everything <laughs> can make a workshop go wrong. Um, but I think yeah, not not meeting your audience where they're at. I think is a key one, either in the work that you do beforehand to understand who they are and understand that context. But you're not always you don't always have the the luxury of being able to figure out who's coming to your session beforehand. Um, So making sure that you have the time at the beginning to be able to check in with people, see how how they're landing in the session, uh, what they want to get out of the session. I think that's really important because then people immediately feel like you get them and you trust. And it builds a trust because you're really, like I said, meeting them where they're at. Uh, And you can adapt and flex the plan and maybe like refer back to what it is that they want to get out of the session. So I think that's one thing when you, you're just going into lecture mode, for example. And I think maybe that that's probably the second bit as well. So there's six fundamental building blocks. There's like lectures or kind of mini teachers. There's individual reflection, group activity or group discussion, active experimentation, which is something that can happen by yourself or with others scenarios and Q&A. So those are like the six building blocks. Um, And there's also, I guess, you can think about how you mix and match those building blocks and changing them up every 20 minutes or so is really important to make things just feel like they're moving, um, not getting too stuck into one type of activity. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, mixing, not mixing things up enough or just relying too much on say, delivering or talking at people um and yeah and so there's there's rules of i mean i remember i think laura told me about the kind of rule of thumb about getting people to talk really early the the, the earlier you get people to talk the more likely they are to you know talk in the workshop session itself and rather than you know being in passive lean back mode or whatever um do you i mean you might have some little kind of practical tips like like that but the other thing i wanted to ask you was during our collaborations 
I've particularly noticed how organized you are. And that might be the the physicist in you. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I know that you're like a an ambassador or a, an expert facilitator in, in Mural, which is a um, an online kind of whiteboarding tool. It does more than that, but that's the way I describe it. Uh, but do you, you know, do you have some things which might be particularly germane to workshop facilitators or just you as a business owner or whatever in terms of processes and tools and workflows and little tips like that as we come towards the end? Uh, in terms of um, workshops, if you're running online workshops, uh, this is you know one of the things that you just touched on there. Getting people in, in, involved and in interacting is really important. Um, there's loads of different ways you can do that. So things like chat, you can just get people to add things in chat. An interactive whiteboard is really great. In, in fact, I think both chat and interactive whiteboards afford a way to run workshops online that engage people more actively than face-to-face sessions because you're not having to wait in turns to hear from everyone. So I think there's some really clever ways that you can use that. Um, when it comes to um, like business, when it comes to business workflows and, and how I organize myself, Big fan of Notion. Uh, it's, I don't know if you've come across it. It's sort of like a an, an interact, it's a collaborative document come database and you can essentially help organize a lot of your processes on there. So I, I often use it to collaborate with um, other project partners or clients, create like a project dashboard that has things like your tasks and key documents regardless of whether those documents are shared saved on i don't know google drive or microsoft office 360 or whatever it is you could just like put a link in notion and that's that you can have access to it uh, so i think those things but yeah i think yeah the geeky physicists in me ultimately uh i think i do like s- systematizing things and it's probably because i don't, my, a guiding principle for me is I don't want to think. <laughs> or at least I don't want to think about the same thing more than once. So if there's a, some process or something that I'm doing, or I found that I do maybe more than once and I do it regularly, then that's a trigger for me to create some kind of system or a process uh, so that I might be doing the upfront thinking. Uh, and But then in the execution, it's just like, it's a gift from my previous self to my future well, self. I, I find it fascinating career. because it's interesting that Brian Mathers, who's part of our co-op, who's now pretty much a full-time illustrator, he systematizes his resources, like his the things he's doing within his illustrator work. Well, that's kind of a hangover from him, him being a software developer. So it's interesting mm. taking those very technical mindsets and applying them to a different area. It's fascinating. I think it's particularly interesting here because as a workshop facilitator, there seem to be certain kinds of things that you that to me seem impossible to systematize. So for example, like yeah. you know, the some of the the touchy feely bits about being a facilitator yeah. and paying attention to people and helping them sort of grok their context. And it's so like learning is such a personal thing. And as a workshop mm-hmm. facilitator, creating the space for learning to happen and creating the, the evocative and experiential yeah. 
thing that people are are going through. Um, there's there's ways to put systems around some of the planning and stuff, but then it seems like in the execution of workshop shops, because it's so context-based and because the people are always yeah. different, there's a set of skills that you have there that are that don't have a way to be systematized. And those are, I'm thinking of things like empathy, intuition, and, mm -hmm. you know, really seeing people for who they are, understanding. So I think it's, it's quite interesting yeah. that you have yeah. those. I don't like the term soft skills because I don't think they're soft at all. Um, but that you have, that you have that, that emotional intelligence that can't be systematized while you're also trying to systematize all the things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for naming that. It is both an art and a science to both design and deliver the, the, the workshops because there's an aspect, I mean, this is kind of what I'm, what I've been working on right now is to create a sort of codify that design process to save time and sort of mental, and I guess a mental anguish of trying to think about how to decide what goes in or doesn't go in, how to then structure things, all those things you can systematize. Um, and then, then when it comes to delivering it, you've got to then see how it's landing with the audience mm -hmm. and what's working, what's not working, and, and just flex with it if you, if you need mm -hmm. to. So, Pat, we have a, one last question for you before we wrap up today, which is what's mm -hmm. next for you? What, are you? what are you looking to do next? What are you looking to get into? What's, what are, what's your kind of future planning at the moment? Yeah. Uh, so I think I've just just touched on that. I think my main focus right now is supporting other coaches and consultants get better at putting on high value, high impact workshops and programming. So the, earlier this year, I launched a workshop design mastery program, um, which kind of packages up the core bits of the last 20 years of my experience designing workshops, programming and other learning experiences. I brought together like things from instructional design, adult education, leisure development, systems coaching, design thinking, and storytelling to create a, a, a kind of a framework to, to help think through uh, how to design workshops. Because quite often, a lot of coaches and consultants who run workshops, they pick up the tricks of the trade. You know, they follow their intuition. Um, they see things that work for other people. They try and incorporate it. But a lot of people haven't had that formal guidance on mm -hmm. workshop design. So they end up spending or burning through a lot of time and I guess mental energy designing or redesigning the process. And I really want to just help people get there quicker so they can really utilize their expertise and have their impact. So and for me, it's- Where can where can people find your, your master masterclass? So it's, uh, I've got, there's a, you can find me on LinkedIn. Okay. And also the, there's, a, there's a little link there if anybody wants to get in touch with me there. Um, my website as well. Um, theskillslab.com. Mm -hmm. There's a page on there. You can find out a little bit more information about it. Great. Well, I will make sure to put those in the show notes and also to bookmark them for myself. Um, Pet, thank you so much for being here today. I know we could talk for hours and I Pleasure. think we should expand the conversation uh, maybe in a future episode. <laughs> no, thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Mm -hmm.